Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Jordan, for reading the, the chapter for us. Um, let's commit ourselves to the Lord. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we just bow in your presence. We confess our utter need of you, Father. If your blessed Spirit does not anoint these words and our lips and our ears and our hearts, we will go away with nothing. Lord, we come to hear. We come to be blessed. We come to be fed. Guide us, Father, we pray. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Over the last months, we've been looking at the servant songs of Jehovah in the book of Isaiah. And today we come to the final servant song in chapter 53. There's probably been more written about this chapter, perhaps even than the rest of the Old Testament put together. I did hear of a commentary on Isaiah 53 that contained 900 pages. I'm not going to take that long. <laughs> the bulk of certainly the first nine verses of Isaiah 53 are not a prophecy at all. They're a gospel. All the verbs are in the past tense. It's looking back at what has been done for us. It's looking back and recalling what the servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us. It's the peak of the Old Testament writings. And it ranks alongside Romans in its importance. It's quoted in all four Gospels, in Acts, in Romans, in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians and Ephesians, in First Timothy and Titus, in Hebrews, in First Peter and First John. Fifteen of the 29 books of the New Testament contain quotations from this chapter. The whole prophecy of Isaiah is unique. It, it contains 66 chapters. And the Bible contains 66 books. And Isaiah can be divided into two parts. Chapter 1 to chapter 39 and chapter 40 to chapter 66. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a similar tone to the Old Testament. And the, the portion from chapter 40 to 66 is more in line with the New Testament. It begins with a word of comfort for God's people. Comfort ye, comfort me, my people. God is reaching out to his earthly people. And it contains the prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist. And there's something particularly unique about this chapter 53 because it is the central chapter of that New Testament portion from chapter 40 to chapter 66. Chapter 53 is the central chapter in that portion of, the, of 
his writings. And it answers the question, how can a sinner be made right with a holy God so as to escape eternal hell and enter eternal heaven? If you want to know the answer to that question, you will find it here in Isaiah 53. The first three verses I have put under the heading of the scorned servant. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah asks the question, and he puts it in the plural, because all of the Old Testament prophets testified to the coming of this one that God would send his beloved son who would come and pay the price for our sin. Who has believed our message? Nobody. And the next question that he asks is, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so I ask myself, who or what is the arm of the Lord? And I found the answer to that in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. <clears throat> and also in Isaiah in chapter 63 and verse 9, we read this. In all their afflictions, that's God's earthly people, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them and he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So the angel of his presence is the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. But we failed to hear the message and we failed to see the signs. And so we need a saviour. Verses 2 and 3, God's greatest revelation to man was his beloved Son, shown in apparent weakness, in our unsaved and blinded state, we saw nothing to attract us to him. He was a root out of dry ground, it says. A sapling growing in the wilderness. He came from Nazareth. Those in Jerusalem looked down on those in Galilee, and those in Galilee looked down on those in Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? That was the attitude of the people of his day. He was despised. He was forsaken. He was the man of sorrows. He was ignored, and he was rejected. But although he was forsaken and ignored and rejected, his was not self-pity. 
his sorrow in David Guzik's um, quotation, which I like. His sorrow was for others and for the fallen, desperate condition of humanity. And certainly when we look around today, it's a desperate condition that humanity is in. So the world turns its face away from him and refuses to respect him. In <coughs> Next we look at, chap at verses 4 to 6 under the heading of the substituted servant. Surely our griefs himself bore and our sorrows we carried, yet we ourselves esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. He burdened, our, he burdened himself with our sorrows. And on account of us, he was grieved. It wasn't his own grief, he was grieved for us. It wasn't his sorrows, it was our sorrows that he took upon himself. We thought that he was suffering for his own wrongdoings. But in actual fact, he was suffering for us. Our attitude was, and if you ask a person in the street today, do you need to be saved? They say, saved from what? COVID perhaps? But we've got that under control here, so we're okay. We don't need to be saved. But we do. Verse 5 again, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. We needed to be saved. We needed to have our sin dealt with. And if we were not to, to bear the burden of it ourselves and bear the punishment of it ourselves, somebody else had to take it and that somebody else was the servant of Jehovah. He paid for the crimes that were ours. He paid for the guilt that was ours. He, paid, he took the punishment that was ours. His scourging alone brought us spiritual healing. We needed to be healed spiritually. We needed to be made alive spiritually. We were dead and cut off from God. And we need to be brought to life. And so, slowly, the realisation comes that actually this is, for, this is for us. Verse 6, we were the sheep that went astray. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has called the iniquity, caused the iniquity of us, us to, all of us, to fall on him. Do you remember the... 
flannel graphs that we used to use in Sunday school years ago. I had one on this verse, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. And the way it was set out, it had two doors. They were called all doors. There was one at the beginning and there was one at the end. And you would have come in at the first door and to go out at the second door. And the first door is coming in and recognising and admitting that you are a sinner that needs a saviour. And going out at the second door, which you recognised that you had had your iniquity dealt with by him. This verse 6, we talked about the uniqueness of, the, of Isaiah and the way that the, the book is structured into two sections and that Isaiah 53 is the central chapter of that second section. Well, this verse 6 is the central verse of that chapter. So Isaiah 53 verse 6 is the centre of the second portion of Isaiah. This is the, the gospel. This is the word for us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned away. We've all gone our own way. We've all done our own thing. We like to do our own thing. Don't tell me what to do. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of its all to fall on him. All the iniquity of all mankind was all laid upon him. Then we go to verse 7 to 9 under the heading The Silently Suffering Servant. He was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke, the stroke was due? That's why he was cut off, because the stroke was due on us and he took it. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So we have the silently suffering servant. Those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus, those of us who have committed our hearts to him, does this not touch us? that he was oppressed under a cruel taskmaster, that he was afflicted harshly. The amazing thing is that he never complained. 
one of the things that fascinated the people was that he was silent. It infuriated the, the Jewish leaders that he wouldn't answer their, their false accusations. Pilate marveled at his silence. And grudgingly respected him for it. He was led along always. If you read through the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you read through the gospel records, you will see that there is a progression all the way to the cross. Over and over again he tells his disciples that he is going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to be crucified and that he's going to rise again the third day. He was led along always under God's hand and by fulfilling God's will to a sacrificial death in the same way as the sacrificial animals that were the, the, the pattern in the Old Testament. He remained silent, never opening his mouth. At no stage did he ever complain. Those are both emphatic statements. He was not a helpless victim. He surrendered himself. Verse 8. By a tyrannous distortion of the law, he was put to death. By a form of law that is actually tyranny. And we read of that in Matthew chapter 26. In a portion from verse 59 to 66, we won't read it all, we'll just read some, some excerpts from it. First of all in 59, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. And in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus knew it was false. They knew it was false. So verse 64, Jesus, verse 63, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, the high priest had a brainwave. He knew there was one thing that Jesus would respond to. And so he said, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. That was the one thing he had to answer. No way would he say, no, I'm not. No way would he remain silent because he is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And just to confirm it, Jesus went on and said to him, you have said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his robes, which he was forbidden to do. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. And they answered, he deserves death. What kind of a trial was that? He only ever told the truth. And yet he was condemned for it. There's an interesting, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Is that the word I wanted? I'm not sure. No, sorry, this one, verse 8. And he was cut off out of the land of the living. Their attitude was, he doesn't even have any offspring. He doesn't even have anyone coming after him to carry on his ministry. He's going to die childless. And to, to be childless in, in the Jewish society was a disaster. It was an imposition. But for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, there was going to be a myriad that would follow. He died for the sin of the elect on whom the rod of God's judgment should have fallen. Verse 9. His grave, this is a fascinating verse, was assigned with wicked men. There were three of them hanging on the cross. Two thieves plus Jesus. And they were dead. And the next day was the, the Passover. And no way could they remain on the cross for the next day, that, so they had to be taken down. So the soldiers would have come and taken those two thieves and just pulled them down off the cross and carried them over to the valley of Gehenna and cast them into the fire that burned the rubbish of the city. But that was not to be the fate, not to be how the servant of Jehovah was dealt with. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. God had two faithful men within the Sanhedrin, within the very heart of the Roman hierarchy. There were two men who did not follow the majority. One was Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3 and the other one was Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted it, partly I believe because of the respect that he had built up for him and the, the, 
discomfort that he felt over how he had been manipulated by the Jewish leaders into having Jesus put to death. So he was taken down from the cross by loving hands. He was embalmed in the way that the Jewish people embalmed their loved ones for burial. They wrapped him in a linen shroud and they carried him and they put him in a new tomb that nobody had yet been laid in. Because he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Once again, these are double negatives. He definitely had done no violence. He absolutely had had no deceit in his mouth. Even in that violent, brutal suffering and death, he was totally sinless. So we come to the verses 10 to 12 and the tone changes. We have the satisfied servant. The first half of verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. So it was the Lord's will to crush him making him suffer, making him an offering for sin. It was a once-for-all sacrifice for all of mankind. The Lord was perfectly delighted to crush him. And that may seem harsh, but the Son also, in Isaiah, in Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, this is... Recorded of the Son, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. When he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And it was the Son's delight to do the Father's will. So Messiah was delighted to do the Father's will. The Messianic servant offers himself as compensation for the sins of the people, interposing for them as their substitute, as Thayer writes. But now we come to to the second half of verse 10 and we find a dramatic change said before the first nine verses the verbs are virtually all in the past tense we're looking back but now from the first half of verse 10 there's a change and the verbs become future now the glorified servant's work is celebrated He's glorified because he did the Father's will. He's glorified because he was raised from the dead. He's glorified because he's gone back to be with his Father in heaven. 
the Lord will see Messiah's seed. Those coming to him, the Lord will prolong his days. He is eternal. And because he is eternal, those who belong to him are also eternal. God the Father delights to see the ministry of the Son prosper. Let's read the words again. He will see his offspring. Notice the I wills or the he wills. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God has seen the anguish of his son bearing the sin that, that was ours and he's satisfied. Your sin, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and your sin has been covered by the blood of Christ, God is satisfied with you. If you want to have that relationship with God, you have it through being united with his son, the Lord Jesus. As a res- verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous servant, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will justify the many. The one will justify the many. He died for all, but not all will come. Many are called and few are chosen, the scripture says. But he has died for the many. The one has died for the many. By knowing him as saviour, the many will be made righteous. We take on the righteousness of Christ himself. We are clothed like a garment with the righteousness of Christ himself when we choose him as our saviour. And he takes the whole load of all the punishment for all of our sin. So verse 12. Therefore I will allot him I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his life, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. Messiah's glorious work is being being rewarded because he he ultimately triumphs. He gave himself until he had 
nothing more to give. He gave his very life and when he, on the cross, cried out as it's finished, put his head down and dismissed his spirit, he had done everything that he could do to deal with our sin. And it was everything that God required and so he accepted it. And so there's forgiveness for the sinner who comes to Christ. And although he was sinless, he included himself with all sinners. He was numbered with the transgressors. He stood beside the murderers. He stood beside the liars. He stood beside the thieves. He stood beside the prostitutes. And he took everything that was due to them. On the cross he cried, Father, forgive them. And the tense that was used in that statement was the imperfect tense, which means that he did it more than once. He looked at the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He looked at the, the chief priests mocking him and laughing at him, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He looked at those who were standing there bewildered, not knowing what was going on, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our Lord Jesus was and is our intercessor. We'll close this with a quotation from Spurgeon. He has gotten his most illustrious splendour, his brightest jewels, his divinest crowns out of coming into contact with this fallen race. So what is your response to the gospel? What is your response to this testimony of how God has dealt with your sin? Have you surrendered to him at all? Have you made that commitment and accepted him as your saviour? If you, if you haven't, will you do it now? Do you need to reaffirm your commitment to him? Has something here touched your heart and reminded you that you used to do better than you do now? Used to have a quiet time. Used to have a time of prayer. And perhaps busyness has just taken that time away. Do you want to re-establish it? Do you, will you do it now? He is worthy of our total surrender to him. He totally surrendered himself for us. Will we not do the same for him? We should all do it now. Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you and praise you for your precious word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that there is a way out of the dark paths of sin.
but only through our Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. May we come and bow the knee to him and commit our all to him. We just commit ourselves to you now, loving Lord, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.